0: 1 Corinthians chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing, I will sing with my mind also. than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you.
1: You'll see an outline on the back of the service sheet. And the question I want to begin our time together with is, who do I come to church for? Who do you come to church for? What got you out here to the faith mission? It's a good question to think about, not least on a raining, cold, windy evening, or when there's something else I could be doing, or I could have been the way the whole weekend, or there's sports on, or I just don't feel like it. When that temptation comes to, to just not bother going, well, who do you come to church for? Who gets you here? Perhaps if you're a visitor, you're here because someone dragged you, in which case you are really welcome. I hope you find it interesting listening in. Um, but for, for lots of us Christians, maybe if we're honest, we do come to church for ourselves, not necessarily in a bad way. We come to benefit ourselves. We come to be encouraged or refreshed or fed. And of course, that's a good thing. God has designed church to be good for us, to be healthy for us, a means of his grace. It can tip over into only coming for my goods. That's consumer Christianity. Where I want a kind of custom-made church that suits my style. My kind of singing, my kind of teaching that suits me, my life stage, regardless of whether it suits anyone else or helps them. And if I don't think I'm going to get much out of this week, well, uh, I'll just not bother. Pop on a podcast or a worship CD. Who do you come to church for? Perhaps others would think, well, I come to church for God. I mean, don't we gather to worship God? Isn't that what church is about? To, To hear from him and to sing praise to him? In fact, my aim when I come to church, if only I could, was, would be to get lost in worship, to forget everyone else around me, to commune with an audience of one. Again, there's some truth to that. We do gather to listen to God and respond to him in prayer and praise. But one of the most striking things about these chapters in 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 to 14, which are all about what to do when you meet up together as church, One of the most striking things is Paul thinks you can't be worshipping God rightly if you're not thinking about the people around you. It's a striking thing. Love of God and love of others. is not an either-or choice, especially in church. The idea of turning up and talking to precisely no one and going home again, that is not God's vision of church. The idea, as we saw in chapter 11, of Um, coming to the Lord's Supper, coming to communion as a solo activity, just me and my God. That's not God's idea of the Lord's Supper. And so tonight, with spiritual gifts, we're going to see that the good of others is absolutely central to what's going on in church, in this area, as with every other. We began to see that in chapter 12, if you were here, where God the Holy Spirit distributes gifts for the common good, So my spiritual gifts are for you. Yours are for me, for us. So we come to church, not just to grow ourselves or to worship God, but because others need us. If you think it doesn't make any difference whether you're here or whether you go along to a small group, you think that makes zero impact, you're not right. God doesn't agree. So let me pray as we turn to this passage that our love And service of each other would grow tonight as God speaks. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have loved us so much in Jesus. You've made us a church family, made us one body through his death on the cross. And so we pray tonight by your spirit you'd help us to keep growing in love. And so use the gifts of your spirit for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the reason I prayed for our love there is because the door to this chapter is labelled love. Specifically, it's labelled pursue love. That's the first two words of the passage. It's on page 960. If you've closed your Bibles, it will help uh, to have it open because I'm going to go quite quickly at points because I've got far too much to say. Page 960, first two words, pursue love. This is our first point. Why is it so important to get the pursuit of love clear up front? Well, you may be aware that some of the gifts discussed in chapter 14 are real areas of discussion and controversy, even amongst Bible-believing Christians today, and um, so it's no bad thing for us to have a reminder of love and humility as we go into this topic. But actually, I put that as point one, not because um, we need it for the modern discussions, but because Paul thought love was the essential foundation for everything else he was saying on spiritual gifts. In fact, he stuck chapter 13, a whole chapter about love, slap bang in the middle of his discussion of spiritual gifts because that was the main corrective the Corinthians needed. As Johnny put it last week, that's the heart of the matter. And if you weren't here, please do listen to that talk. You see, the Corinthians have asked about gifts, especially tongues. Paul wants to talk to them about love and how it connects to the gifts. Last week, we saw love trumps the gifts in every way. Without love, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Um, Chapter 13, verse 2, If I have not love, even if I've got massive prophetic powers, I'm nothing. Love is bigger than gifts because it lasts eternally. So have a look at 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. So hanging over this whole chapter, the huge command is pursue love. As a church, as individual Christians, don't be seeking what's best for me, what makes me look good or feel good now. Instead, get on board with God's eternal love project of building a temple for himself, a people for himself. As verse 12 of our chapter puts it, 14 verse 12, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Love is the way in. But 14 verse 1, if you do value love and pursue love, you will value spiritual gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Why is that? Well, as we've said, chapter 12, the gifts are for the common good. If I love you, I'll want you to benefit from spiritual gifts. I'll desire God, by his Spirit, to equip me with ways I can serve others. So far, so good. So far, so recap. But look at the rest of verse 1. It's really interesting. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now this is a strange one. How can Paul say, especially desire, one of the gifts in particular? How can he single out that gift for special attention? Because isn't that what the Corinthians were getting wrong? They were obsessed with tongues being the kind of really spiritual gift, the kind of top dog gift. Wasn't having a kind of hierarchy of gifts their exact problem? And didn't Paul correct that in chapter 12 by saying, hang on, hang on, all gifts are equal? Or no, actually, that's not what chapter 12 said. Chapter 12 said all gifts are necessary. No one can say, I'm not needed in a church. And he said that all gifts come from the same place, God, for the same purpose, all of our common goods. So no one can boast about their particular gift. But he didn't say that all the gifts are equal or equally useful. Let me just show you. Flip back to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 31. Last verse of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 31. Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Paul does believe some gifts are higher than others, some are to be wished for more than others. So, what are they? How do you tell? And here you can almost hear the Corinthians kind of queuing up to give the answer. Well, they wouldn't be queuing, would they They'd be kind of scrabbling, scrabbling forward, Say, I know, I know, it's the power gifts. Surely the higher gifts are the more impressive ones, the miraculous ones, the kind of really wise-looking ones, particularly tongues. It's just so clearly supernatural. That's the sign I'm spiritual. To which Paul's answer in chapter 14 is no, it's not actually a gift like tongues. It's a gift like prophecy. That's there in 14 verse 1. It's there right at the end of the chapter, 14 verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. All gifts are necessary to church, some gifts are especially desirable. And how is Paul deciding what's especially desirable? Well, his criterion is love. That's why he interrupts himself. Just after saying 12 verse 31, he interrupts himself to say, hang on, we need to get love on the table before we can go any further in this discussion. If you care most about love, you come to church for other people. If you come to church for other people, you'll care about spiritual gifts and especially the gifts that will build up other people the most. The only way into understanding this chapter is through a door marked love. That's our first point. But before we move on to to points two to four, I wonder if a couple of questions are already bubbling away in your mind, which I've put on the handout. The first, most obviously, is what are tongues and what is prophesying? What are we actually talking about? What do they look like today? I'm sure that question's bubbling along. And then there's a second question. Why prefer prophesying to tongues? I suspect most of us are more interested in the first of those two questions. Paul spends his time on the second of those two questions in this chapter. That's what all of two, points two to four will be about. The rest of the chapter will be about that. Um, he doesn't actually give a direct def, definition of either gift. But before we dive in, I am going to say a couple of things, lest we're distracted by that question the whole time. Um, I need to be honest and say I'm tentative about some of this because Bible-believing Christians do disagree um, and we're just not given precise definitions. In fact, if you do hear someone precisely defining what they think 1 Corinthians 14 prophecy is, almost certainly what they've done is closed their Bibles, thought about their experience, and told some inspiring stories. But those stories go both ways. Depends who you're listening to. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give uh, my best attempt at defining tongues at the start of the talk, then we're going to look closely through the text, and at the end I'm going to come back and try and define prophecy a bit more specifically. What we can say about prophecy is it's clearly something to do with speaking God-revealed truth to encourage other people. That much is really clear. And we'll come back to something more specific later on. What about tongues? What is the gift of tongues? Well, the word itself just means, well, it means literally the tongue, and by extension, spoken languages. It's clear as you go into the chapter that Paul's talking about unknown languages, foreign languages or unintelligible language. So put simply, the gift of tongues is a spirit-given ability to speak an unknown language. Under that umbrella... There are two main views amongst Christians. The first argue that tongues is the ability to speak in a human foreign language. So it's unknown to other people in the church, but it is a human language. Others would say it's an angelic language, a kind of prayer language. Um, So look at verse 18, for example. When Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, The first option would think he's thinking of the fact he can speak Hebrew and Aramaic as well as Greek. They'd say, well, look at Acts 2 at Pentecost. They were speaking human languages. They'd say, look at verse 11 here, uh, speaking about foreigners and speaking foreign languages. Or verse 21 refers to um, uh, an episode in Isaiah that's speaking about foreign human languages. However, that doesn't fit everything in chapter 14, just look at verse 2. This speaker is speaking not to men, but to God. Look at verse 14. This kind of praying is praying with the spirit, but not with the mind. My mind is unfruitful. So many others look at that and say tongues is actually a non-human language, a language of prayer. Or is chapter 13, verse 1 put it, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now that debate can get quite heated, but actually I'm not sure we need to choose on that one. It's interesting, when tongues are introduced in chapter 12, both times the phrase is various kinds of tongues. Verse 10, verse 28, if you're taking notes, various kinds of languages. Let me get really specific. There's um, a mature Christian I'm sure there's more than one, but I know of one particularly who will regularly pray privately in tongues in this church family, an unknown non-human prayer language. Many would see that as this gift of the Spirit. There's another Christian in this church, also mature, who can speak exceptional, fluent Japanese. That's Richard Brash. You may know him. He's (laughs) heading to Japan with Yuko and the children next month. Now, Richard didn't received that gift instantly. He had to work hard on it. Actually, there's no thing in the passage saying spontaneity is the only way that the Holy Spirit works. In fact, some of the gifts in chapter 12, like administration or serving or helping or teaching, it's unlikely they just drop out of the sky. Kind of no ability before, and then suddenly, wow, I can do everything. So we shouldn't assume things the Bible doesn't say about what these gifts must look like. I think Richard's tongue's (laughs) Are also a gift from God's Spirit. See, tongues is a God given ability to speak in languages unknown to others, whether it's human or non human. And either way, with either of those people, the entirety of chapter 14 would apply to them and how they use that gift. You see, those two individuals come to church not for themselves. To pray how they feel comfortable or to show off how good they are at Japanese, but for others. To pray in a way that builds others up, not just themselves. And this is our second point verses two to five. Love means valuing what most builds up others, not just myself. Love means valuing what most builds up others. From verse 2 onwards, we begin this long-running comparison between tongues and prophecy that's all the way through the chapter. Um, So picture the scenario. One Sunday soon, I guess, because he's almost away, we get Richard up to interview him about the upcoming trip, and we get the other person I mentioned up to pray for him afterwards. Now, Richard has begun practicing for when he arrives, so he does the entire interview in Japanese, and then the person praying for him prays in tongues, a prayer language, Ten minutes go by of that, all of that happening and we are none the wiser. Literally none the wiser. Only God and Yuko knew what he was saying and hopefully Kazanila, they're learning it. The rest of us aren't built up at all. Same with the prayer. It was a prayer, God heard it. It may have encouraged the individual praying but verse four, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself because we didn't understand Whereas the one who prophesies says intelligible stuff, builds up the church. That's the contrast. Uh, Verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people, because they can understand the words, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's really important as you go through 1 Corinthians 14 to notice Paul's not having a go at tongues as a bad thing. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. It's just he values prophecy even more because the one who prophesies builds up the church because they understand. And in that, you can see Paul's love priority. What's going to build other people up? To go back to my opening question, who does Paul come to church for? Others. And it really is others. I actually think this is quite shocking because the person in verse 2 does speak to God. There is real prayer, real worship going on. It's just that everyone else is cut out the loop. And Paul says that's not what church is about. What does that principle mean for us? It is very common in some Christian circles that what's what seen or felt as really worshipful, a kind of really spiritual church meeting, looks like being lost in a world of your own, worshipping the living God as an audience of one, no regard to anyone else, no verbal contact with anyone else. And just to say, that can happen as much in a kind of formal cathedral setting as it can in a kind of exuberant dance party, praise party setting. That is not the kind of church the Holy Spirit wants, however spiritual it feels. Spirit-filled worship, like in Ephesians 5, is horizontal as well as vertical. Don't get me wrong, personal prayer life, private devotional life, it's crucial for Christians. Jesus said, close the door, pray to your Father in secret, an audience of one. But that's not what we're doing when we gather. It's not church. The Corinthians were thinking far too much about me and not enough about us. Paul wants to see the church built, God's great eternal love project. Which is why, point three, Paul wants, uh, sorry, Paul wants, values speech that's understandable. Love means valuing what is understandable in church. Just have a look at verse six with me. Verse six makes it clear, prophecy is only one example of a whole range of possible ways of speaking that Paul would prefer to happen in church than untranslated tongues. Which just shows his key point is about intelligibility. It's about being understandable. That's the principle of which prophecy rather than tongues is a great example. So the chain goes like this so far. If you've dropped off the bus, this is the point to get back on. Pursue love and so care about spiritual gifts that will build others up and the ones that will most build others up are understandable words verses 7 to 11 give three illustrations to try and drive home the point about how important it is to be understandable he picks one from music from the army and then from foreign travel how are people going to know what's going on musically How will the church be prepped for the battle? How will we be able to relate to one another well, as a family, as a body, if we don't know what we're saying to each other? If we just can't understand the words? Words really matter. I don't know if you've had any cross-cultural communication horror stories. I don't know if the linguistic barrier has ever lived up to its name. I remember a, a... holiday we were off the beaten track newly married off the beaten track in a kind of spanish town and i got quite a bad bite it was starting to swell up and my leg was looking a bit worrying so Jessie, um, she went to a pharmacist in the town and tried to communicate what had happened um, no shared language so <laughs> apparently she mimed the part of a mosquito and then a swelling leg at which point the pharmacist tried some follow-up questions which involved miming vomiting, apparently. And we eventually got some medicine, which they both hoped was the right stuff. When Jessie passed me the tablet, she said, she couldn't be certain it wasn't medicine for morning sickness. (laughs) I did take it, but I thought words really matter. Really matter. Whether it's an orchestra or an army or a family, and especially in church, words are how we help each other how we pull in the same direction you can sometimes tell a bit of of how someone's getting on by their facial expression you can sometimes convey something with a smile but if you want to verse three build someone up or encourage them or comfort them understandable words will be key likewise up here in the kind of formal part of our meeting when someone's leading it matters that it's understandable that's what verse 13 onwards are picking up. Paul explains that when praying, he'd, he'd always rather speak intelligible words in a church rather than uninterpreted tongues. Just look at verse 16 for why. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit that is, um, praying in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider that's not a, someone who's not a Christian, that's someone who just doesn't have the gift, who doesn't understand the language. How can someone who doesn't understand say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. That's a real insight into how and why we pray at churches, whether it's up front here on a Sunday or around the tables at our monthly prayer meetings or in small groups. Paul wants us to all be able to say amen to someone's prayer. That means understandable words rather than tongues. I guess it means being audible so others can join in. Prayer in church is to be a shared activity, a corporate joining in to thank God or depend on God together. So let me get very practical for a moment. What do we make of styles of praying where everyone prays in different languages? or styles of praying where everyone plays at the same time, just a cacophony of noise. When I was a student, that was all the rage. Um, We we thought it was a kind of expression of our confidence that God can hear all these prayers at once. It kind of works, because he's amazing. We felt really spiritual doing it. But actually, the Holy Spirit says here, through Paul, it's better for others to be able to hear you. Not that that's... Completely wrong, but it's not the best. It's missing out. What's it missing out on? Well, I never heard any of those other prayers that the students around me prayed. They did me zero good, even though they were real prayers, real thanksgiving, good for them, uh, heard by God, but didn't build me up. Whereas actually I have to say that hearing other Christians pray is one of the most encouraging things in my spiritual life. And later, verse 26, Paul says, say, go one at a time when you're speaking in church so that others can hear. Same thing goes for worship meetings where everyone's singing in tongues at the same time. I've, I've been in lots of meetings like that. Sounds beautiful, but it's not as edifying as just hearing someone sing or all of us sing in English. Because church is not about me. It's about us, about being built up I wonder if at that point you're starting to think I'm overstating things. Let's look at verse 19. Paul says, or verse 18, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's not anti-tongues. But verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What does other Christians and the church as a whole good is being understandable. And I think we should take that principle and apply it kind of across what we do in church, across what we say. Every aspect of Sundays and midweek is what we're saying, understandable. Uh, Because tongues versus prophecy isn't the only example of that principle. For example, hundreds of years of the church, until the Reformation, the church held services in Latin which most of the people didn't speak, directly contrary to the word of God here. I'm sure it sounded spiritual. There are still churches today that operate in archaic English, language so archaic that most of the people don't understand. I'm not against all traditions, by the way. Lots of that language is wonderful, beautiful, but it might need an explanation. Or there are churches where preachers and leaders and prayers, they use highly technical theological language without any explanation. Such that, again, a large part of the gathered church just don't understand, so can't be built up. Usually it's not, it's not kind of deliberately flexing their muscles. It's not like Corinth trying to kind of show off. Um, it's usually just because it's easier or safer to stick with Bible words and theological terms rather than putting it simply into the everyday language that people use. It's actually quite hard. Simple, profound clarity that takes deep biblical truth into normal, everyday language. It takes the help of God's Spirit, real time and effort and prayer. Likewise, sometimes churches, and I guess we might need to be aware of this ourselves, they can just develop their own subculture, a kind of in-house jargon language, That's fine, we all understand what it means, but when a visitor comes in, it's actually quite hard to follow. And it's clear from verses 20 to 25 that Paul is concerned about intelligibility for the sake of visitors as well as for the sake of Christians joining in. See, if we pursue love, we'll come to church to serve others, including folks who aren't yet believers but are just wandering in. Verse 23, let's start there. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters and he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul's point here in this whole paragraph, actually, 20 to 25, is that these strange tongues that the Corinthians are so excited about can actually be a hindrance in someone coming to believe in Jesus. In fact, he takes them back to Isaiah in verses 20 to 22 for an object lesson that when Isaiah spoke about strange tongues, foreign languages in that case, um, it, it wasn't some great trophy Actually, it came as a judgment on God's people. They basically weren't listening to Isaiah, speaking plain truth in their own language. And so God said, okay, if you're not going to listen to him, I'll send you to Assyria, and that's the language you'll hear around you. Tongues back then wasn't a trophy, it was a tragedy. It just confirmed their unbelief. Now, Paul's not using that to say he's anti-tongue. Remember verse 18? Uh, I, I thank God I speak in tongues but he is saying that's the effect it could have on someone visiting church. They're not a believer. They hear that. They're confirmed in their unbelief. If someone comes to church and all they hear is strange vocal sounds with no apparent meaning, if they don't have anyone explain to them the gospel and its implications in an understandable way, they may well just go away and think, that lot are crazy. Confirmed in unbelief, rather than convicted of their sin before a living God. So again, it's worth thinking through what we do with that lens. Not that we design everything around folks who aren't Christians, because we're meeting to build each other up as Christians, but we do want everything to be understandable, followable, That's why we have an outline, by the way. If you've ever wondered why we bother printing those sheets, it's as much for visitors as it is for us. So, let me sum up our four points. Paul says, pursue love. That's the big command. And so, prefer what builds up others. Which means words that are understandable that will particularly comfort, encourage, console others. For example, prophecy, not tongues. That's the big argument, and I hope some of the wider implications to our corporate life have begun to become clear. But I did promise I'd say a few minutes on what prophecy is. So before I close, let me do that, on what prophecy is and whether it's around today Um, just to warn you I wrote a whole talk basically but obviously I'm not going to give it all now this is just the headlines feel free to ask me more questions on this firstly on whether gifts are around or have ceased today when you read through these chapters and actually through the whole New Testament there's no explicit verse saying that spiritual gifts in general have ceased some Christians believe that I don't think it's right In fact, it would be surprising if spiritual gifts generally had ceased, because in chapter 12, they're how God builds the church by his spirits. And chapter 13, the expectation seems to be that the gifts like prophecy will stop when we see God face to face, i.e. when Jesus returns, when the perfect comes. So it looks like spiritual gifts in general continue. After all, we still need serving, teaching, administration, helping, lots of the things that are in those lists. Our God's still living and active among us by his Spirit. However, it's also clear that not every gift continues. Flick back with me to chapter 12, verse 28. Chapter 12, verse 28 God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Answer no. Are all prophets? Answer no. Are all teachers? And so on. It's very clear with apostles that that was a particular gift for a particular time and place. The 12 chosen eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, hand-picked spokesmen, So that gift, the the gift of apostle with a capital A, has ceased. If someone comes along suggesting, as people still do, uh, that that the gift hasn't stopped and they are the new apostles with the same kind of authority, the same kind of role, please do not listen to them. It's not what Jesus said. He picked authoritative witnesses to an unrepeatable event of his resurrection. So the question is, if, if the gift of apostle has stopped, what about the gift of prophet? Gift of prophecy, the role of prophet. And here's where the debate gets lively. There's lots of disagreement about what prophecy actually is, how much authority it actually has, and uh, whether it's still going today. And it really would take a whole talk to explain it all. And um, I'm going to just give you some headlines, and you can ask me more um, uh, in private. Um, but we are running a bit long, so I apologize for that. Um, Let me give you three groups, which I think are helpful to have in our minds. There's new Bible prophecy, there's not Bible prophecy, and there's applied Bible prophecy. I'm going to land in the final one. The first one's positively dangerous, and the middle one I think is wrong, but I can understand how people get there. So three types. Firstly, what do I mean by new Bible prophecy? That's when someone believes or acts like God speaks directly through individuals today with the same authority that he did through his apostles and prophets, the Bible writers. They usually won't say they're writing new Bible. Of course they won't. But actually, they might say something like, the Holy Spirit continues to lead the church into truth, and so whatever the church institution says, even if it's leading us away from the clear teaching of Scripture, well, then that's the voice of the Spirit. That is new Bible prophecy, and it is not the voice of the Spirit. When someone puts a command in God's mouth that they didn't get from the Bible, and this is usually individual rather than institutional, when they say, you must move to a certain place, I've had a word from the Lord for you, if you don't, it would be a sin to disobey. Or when someone promises me that God will give me something, health or children or money, that he hasn't promised in his word, that is new Bible prophecy, and it is dangerous. It causes untold pastoral damage. It's precisely the traditions of men that Jesus warned us about a couple of weeks ago. Mark, you have a fine way of ignoring the word of God to stick to your man-made alternatives. So beware new Bible-style prophecy. Um, The New Testament's really clear that Scripture is sufficient, that Jesus is a climactic word, And Paul says in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that is, New Testament apostles and prophets. Or, in other words, prophet with a capital P, just like apostle with a capital A, is a foundational gift that is no more. The Bible writers. No more new Bible prophecy. A second approach is the not-Bible prophecy approach. This is where you, you say uh, people say quite rightly, well, okay, there's no more kind of Bible-writing-type authoritative uh, prophecy. <coughs> you can't contradict Scripture. You can't go against it. But maybe, maybe God does reveal information that's not in the Bible uh, at a lower level of authority. So maybe if we close our minds and see what thoughts pop in Maybe God will give us information, maybe information about a particular individual and what they're going through. Um, They base that on 1 Corinthians 14. Um, As long as it's described as not God says da-da-da-da, but I wonder if God might be saying maybe, see what you think about this, weigh this by scripture. It's not as dangerous if it's put like that. Um, I think the biggest danger here is actually distraction. It can just be a lot more exciting, that method. Um, than coming to the Bible and seeing what it actually means. Um, my biggest problem with it, which we'll think more about um, next time, is it's very hard to weigh that against Scripture, which Paul encourages us to do um, at the end of the chapter. It's very hard to weigh that kind of prophecy if it's not linked at all to what the Bible says. We read to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, I laid the foundation of Jesus Christ Careful how you build on it. We're to weigh words, prophetic words, against that foundation. Hard to do that if it's got nothing to do with the gospel. So, what's the final category? For the sake of those of you who are glazing over and thinking, when will this end? Uh, don't worry, a couple more minutes. What's the final category? Applied Bible. Prophecy is applied Bible. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to reveal to God's people, how the gospel specifically applies to me or to someone else or to our corporate life. I actually think, you may be surprised at this, I think prophesying does go on in this church family. In fact, for a number of months, I've been praying for the gift of prophecy as I prepare to preach. I don't think prophesying is preaching, various reasons you can ask me afterwards, but I think parts of a sermon fall under the category of prophecy the parts where I'm not just explaining what the passage means, but trying to apply it to our lives, personally and corporately, being more specific than Scripture. And I pray for the gift of prophecy because I pray that the Lord would supernaturally help me share examples that are just what someone needed to hear. That without me knowing, I couldn't know. I pick the thing that just, just is the word someone needs to encourage them or console them. I'd encourage us all to pray that. That God would give me words that would build someone else up in conversation. Not completely disconnected from scripture. How could you weigh that? But applying God's gospel into people's lives. That happened to me last year. I went along to a home group. I was feeling a bit discouraged. And someone in the group, often small groups I think is where this happens actually. Where people share insights and applications from a passage and it gets weighed against scripture Uh, someone shared something that was exactly what i needed to hear they couldn't have known the situation i was involved in at that moment it was supernaturally exactly what i needed to hear you see when paul uses the word revelation in verse 30 uh, i don't think that needs to mean reveal new content particularly kind of nothing to do with the gospel or the bible I think it could well be insight into the gospel God has revealed. Certainly Ephesians and Philippians, Paul uses the word that way. Again, you can ask me if you want to know about that. Right, time to sum up and to stop. Paul says, the chain, Pursue love, which means caring about others and what builds them up at church, which means valuing spiritual gifts particularly the gifts that build people up with understandable words and i've been saying that i think in the new covenant though we're not capital p prophets i think god by his spirit can equip us to encourage each other with gospel applications that are personal and god-given And so, let me tell you one other prayer, I I say. At the end of a service, just in that 20 seconds before everyone, the hubbub starts, I often pray, well, I used to pray, Lord, give me some words that would help someone. Like, give me a conversation where I can just help someone. I don't know who it is, I don't know what to say, but just give me a conversation that would help someone. I'm now gonna pray, give me the gift of prophecy. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you For the glorious gospel of Christ crucified, that foundation on which we're built, that cornerstone. And we pray that you would help us, when we gather together, to encourage and comfort and console each other with our words. Pray we'd be a church that builds each other up in love. In Jesus' name. Amen.